Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Gosh, thank you guys for letting me uh, be back here. It's always just so fun to be at Denver Community Church. It's one of the churches, actually, where I will say, I really feel at home, and that's not something I can say about uh, most churches, but it's because every time I'm here, you guys work so hard to make me feel welcome, and I know that's true for a lot of the rest of you, so thank you. Um, It is a little daunting for me to be here on this particular Sunday because today something new is beginning. This is the first week in a three-week series that's going to be happening here at Denver Community Church that's called What's Next? And it's a sermon series in which this community is going to be exploring one of the only constants in life, which is change. Change is one of the few things that you can count on. You know, it's been a difficult last couple of years for so many of us, and it's been a time of great change for all of us. There's no going back to what was, but we may not be exactly sure of what's next. And so how do we live in this in-between where there's kind of a liminal space between what was and what will be? I think it's a pretty good idea to start a conversation like this by admitting that something has ended and then to explore what that ending really means to us, for us. What's been left behind? What's been let go? What's been lost along the way? We like to talk about new beginnings. Talking about new beginnings, uh, it's exciting. There's a lot of energy. There's a sense of opportunity and possibility. But we don't always talk a lot about endings. It's sort of easier for us to just move right on to whatever's next. But I think the best way to get to the future from the present is to recognize what is now in the past. Lucky for us, in the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, Jesus has a little something to say about endings. And so I want us to begin by reading this together. Mark 13, 1 through 8. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, 
What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled. And Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. This is not an easy text, uh, not an easy text to understand. And when I began reading this, I couldn't help but think of my grandmother. I know that sounds strange, but my last living grandmother, her name is, and I'm not joking, Zadie Aveline Loudermilk York, sweet, sweet lady. A few years ago, I invited my grandmother to come visit me where I live in Manhattan. Now, my grandmother was 83 years old at the time, and she lives a very simple life in the North Georgia mountains on a quiet country road. She works two hours each morning at McDonald's. All that she had known of New York City had come from her television set. So I felt that grandma, 83 years old, she needed to come and see this place with her own eyes. Now, in order to give her the full touristic experience, my mother had the bright idea for us to get this fancy room at the W Hotel in the center of Times Square. Now, for New Yorkers, Times Square is like Dante's seventh circle, right? We do not go there. But for first-time visitors, it's like you're, you know, you're stepping through the wardrobe into Narnia. You should have seen the circumference of my grandmother's eyes when she stepped out of that taxi and was instantly immersed in the pulsating, phosphorescent energy of Times Square. She stood right in the middle of the road, gazing and, and grinning, completely unaware that she had stopped traffic on 47th Street, but the childlike wonder of that moment was actually nothing compared to what happened when we opened the door into our hotel room high in the sky. Now, the room that we booked for her was on the 42nd floor of the W Hotel, but until that day, my grandmother had actually never been higher up than 11 stories. So she took a few steps in, she dropped her suitcase, she walked right over to the window, and then she just stood there, mouth agape. For at least a minute, I watched her eyes watch the world outside. Now, I am not sure she blinked. A sea of skyscrapers, screens of light, throngs of ant-like tourists bustling along the streets below. She was taking it all in, and I didn't say a word. I just watched her absorb the majesty of New York that we New Yorkers often take for granted. Getting the chance to witness her childlike wonder in that moment for me, it was worth the whole trip. But can you imagine if in the middle of that magical moment, if I had walked up behind my grandmother and leaned over her shoulder and whispered, well, don't get too attached to this place because the way climate change is going, the whole thing will be underwater before you know it. What kind of a person would extinguish 
a loved one's joy and wonder in a moment like this. I mean, I would never be so rude, not to my own grandmother. Unfortunately for the disciples, Jesus was not always so tactful. In fact, he could be kind of a buzzkill sometimes. See, today we are in Mark 13, but if we rewind the tape to Mark's 12th chapter, the evidence, it's all there. Jesus invites the disciples to join him on a little Passover vacation in the big city of Jerusalem, but he makes them stay two miles outside of town in Bethany where the poorest pilgrims could find discount lodging. Staying in Bethany is like when your parents take you to Disney World in Orlando, but then they book a motel on the interstate outside of town in Kissimmee. Uh, basically, Bethany is Newark. On their first vacation day, some of you have been to Newark. Welcome, good morning. On their first vacation day, Jesus enlists his disciples in a little bit of a PR scheme. He has them borrow a colt from a stranger, and then he orchestrates this grand entrance through a crowd of Jesus' superfans who are literally singing his praises. But then the text says that as soon as Jesus arrives and dismounts the colt, he checks his watch, he decides it's getting too late, he turns around and he drags the disciples all the way back to Bethany. Now the next day, Jesus wakes up early and he gets everybody up so early that they all have to skip breakfast. Now Jesus is hungry and like us, when Jesus is hungry, he gets grumpy. So he comes upon a fig tree and it doesn't have any figs on it to satisfy his hunger, which makes him pretty angry. So he curses it and it says the fig tree withers. But the interesting thing is the text says it wasn't even the season for figs. Talk about an overreaction. So they leave the fig tree and they finally make it to the temple. This is day two. But before the disciples can even scope out the joint, Jesus is already ruining the party. Now in Jesus's defense, He's got good cause to be upset about what's happening in the temple. At the temple, they're practicing what you might call for-profit faith, in which religion is being commoditized. Jesus witnesses this extortionary system where preachers get rich and people get robbed. It's the kind of religious system which might ring oddly familiar to people in 21st century America. And seeing this enrages Jesus so much that he makes a mess of the place. He is turning over tables and benches, and then he rounds up the kids and drags them right back out to Bethany. So by the time we catch up to Jesus in Mark 13, this vacation has been a bit of a bust. But here they are, departing the temple, and one of Jesus' disciples stops to snap a picture. He looks up at the building, and he is overcome by its grandeur, and who could blame him? This was the most magnificent structure that he would have ever laid eyes on. The temple was built by Herod the Great, and its sheer size was staggering. It had a footprint of more than 35 acres, which means the temple would have covered about one-sixth of the whole city of Jerusalem. The bright white stones that formed its walls, well, they were a spectacle unto themselves. A single block of stone in that wall would have been 46 feet long, 10 feet high, and 10 feet deep. They weighed 415 tons each, more than the blocks in the great Egyptian pyramids. Now, if that's not enough, 
These walls were covered in sheets of glittering plates of gold that would nearly blind visitors. The first century Jewish historian Josephus remarked that the gold on the temple reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those straining to look at it were forced to turn away. So keep in mind that these disciples, they're not cosmopolitan city folks. They're not jet-setting one percenters. They're mostly blue-collar workers from out in the country. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, the Galilean disciples were having a touristic experience. Jerusalem for them, especially at Passover, was like being in Times Square for the first time. So it's no surprise then that one of Jesus' disciples gazes up at the temple and can hardly process what his eyes are seeing. Perhaps mercifully, Mark doesn't name the disciple. I think that maybe because of what happens next, Mark wants to save this poor guy the embarrassment of being known. He stands there awestruck, and this unnamed disciple taps his rabbi on the shoulder and says, wow, will you get a look at this place? Isn't it magnificent? And Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Talk about a buzzkill. He just extinguishes the disciples' wonder right there where he stood. But buzzkill or not, Jesus is reminding them, and I think us, of a God-honest truth that we need to hear whether we like it or not. Nothing lasts forever. Everything constructed by human hands is temporary. The houses in which we live, the offices in which we work, even the sacred places in which we worship, they're all fleeting no matter how much you love them. And if that's not bad enough, the structures on the insides of these places that we build, they will eventually crumble too. The families we build, the careers we construct, the relationships we form, temporary. Now, if you were a Buddhist, you would call this idea impermanence. But as Christians, well, we just call it a fact of life. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and the stones of life, no matter how majestic or well-placed, they'll all eventually fall. Permanence is an illusion. Permanence can be a delusion. This is just part of the truth of what it means to be human, and I think it's one of the hardest truths that we humans have to learn, which is why so many of us spend so much time and energy pretending that it's not the truth. We live under this false assumption that the way things are is the way that they will always be. The way that they are today is the way they surely will be tomorrow. And if things start to shift, if they begin to change, well, we will do everything we can to restore equilibrium, normalcy, order. Now, this way of living is not a problem. Well, at least not until the world changes against your will. And then we don't know what to do with ourselves. When the situations and structures of our lives begin to crumble and fall, as they have for so many of us these past couple of years, we find ourselves perfectly equipped to navigate a world that no longer exists. Now, you'd think that those of us who grew up in church would have received some tools 
to help us navigate these kinds of experiences. But I'm sorry to say that most of modern religion has become so focused on building up that it forgets to prepare people for times of tearing down. So it does us good to regularly remind ourselves that everything is temporary, even if we love it with our whole heart. You know, the late Mary Oliver once wrote a poem called In Blackwater Woods. It's an autumn reflection, so it seems apropos. And it's one that I've come to cherish in times of passing away. I want to read you the final stanza. I just let it wash over you. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing that your whole life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. You know, we, we resist endings, I think, because endings inv involve change. And there's nothing people hate quite like change. Because after all, change means uncertainty. Change means loss of control. Change means having to learn new ways of living in the world, and that's always uncomfortable, even sometimes painful. But you know what? Hating change won't delay it or deter it. The future is always breaking into the present, and it never calls ahead to ask for permission. So we have to learn to love the worlds in which we live, to hold them against our bones, knowing our whole lives depend on it, and then when the time comes, to let them go, to let them go. Now, after Jesus takes a pen to this unnamed disciple's balloon, the whole lot of them crosses down across the Kidron Valley, ascends the Mount of Olives, and then they take a seat facing back toward the temple. And that's when Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the first four disciples, by the way, to quit their day jobs and follow Jesus, they come to their teacher in private, as they often do, and ask, what did that mean? They say, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to change? Now, how often have you asked a version of this question? Well, for my part, I've lost count. We all want to know what tomorrow will bring. We all want to divine the signs of the future so that we can plan for it, so that we can prepare for it, so that we can pretend that we have some control over it. Teacher, how will we know that the future is here? You know, these days there are plenty of future casters out there, both secular and spiritual, who will be happy to tell you what's coming your way and when. The palm reader behind the neon sign in downtown Manhattan will charge you by the minute for an answer to that question, and the end times preacher on your television set will offer you an answer in exchange for a tax-deductible donation. Their games may look different, but the goal is the same. So you want a clear timeline for the future of this world? Jesus asks, about that day or hour, no one knows. Now, if you had walked into another church this morning, and not this one, you might have heard a different sermon. You might have heard a sermon about how Armageddon is just around the corner, and you should probably be stockpiling cans for the apocalypse. That preacher would have pointed to you, you to all of the, the chaos and the violence that's going on as rock-solid proof that we're nearing the end of the whole darn thing. These folks often preach 
and pray in Jesus' name, which makes it even harder to believe that they're just another huckster practicing what one scholar, what one scholar called almanac discipleship which is a way of practicing spirituality that believes in certain ways of behaving according to a date on an apocalyptic calendar. Watch out that no one deceives you, Jesus says. People will come in my name and will deceive many. When you hear of wars or rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is, not, is still to come. It's actually kind of funny Jesus' answer. I mean, the disciples asked Jesus for a sign that the future is here. And Jesus responds with a whole list of things, a whole list of signs that the future is not here yet. Now, for Jesus' part, he does mention the end. But remember, everything that Jesus is saying here is in response to a question about the temple. He's not talking about the end of the universe, the end of the cosmos, the end of human history. This is not an apocalyptic passage. And Jesus is not talking about the end of the space-time universe or painting a portrait of Armageddon. As theologian Will Willimon says, contrary to what you may have been led to believe, when Jesus goes apocalyptic and talks of the end, he's not predicting the future. He's talking about the precariousness of the present. When Mark wrote this gospel, three decades or so after Jesus' crucifixion, well, the news reports were as bleak as they are today. The economy had tanked. The oppressed Jewish people were, were rioting throughout the city. In A.D. 70, the Roman army entered Jerusalem to quell an uprising, and they burned the temple to the ground. When this happens, historians tell us, there was gold hidden in the temple treasury, which melted from the fire's heat and seeped down into the cracks between the stones, and the greedy Romans had to pry the stones apart so they could retrieve all of that gold. Not one stone here will be left on another, Jesus said. So Mark is telling this story to a Christian community that is living in a state of social upheaval that was testing the, lim the limits of human, re human resolve, which is to say, Mark is telling this story to us. He's writing to Christians in a time much like our own when the status quo is crumbling, which is bad, bad news for those who benefit from it and the best news possible for those who are crushed by it. But God is not interested in sustaining the status quo or propping up obsolete institutions that do as much harm as good. Now, Jesus isn't the first person to predict the destruction of the temple. Micah, the prophet Micah, hints at it and ignites a scandal. Jeremiah does the same thing too. He's almost executed for it. Another prophet named Uriah said it, and he was hunted down, dragged before the king, and run through with a sword. You see, to speak of the temple is to speak of much more than just the temple. For first century Jews like Jesus' disciples, the temple was not just another building. It represented the religious and political order upon which they had built their lives. If we read Jesus' words in context, and particularly in light of Mark's last chapter, we hear him forecasting the end of an old order. It's not just that the building will be bulldozed. It's that the whole religious structure will be disqualified. And while this would have been an arresting thought 
to a first century Jew, Jesus just talks about it like it's another sordid fact of life. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. Notice here, Jesus uses the future tense, there will be. These sorts of things happen, and they're bound to keep happening. And it's tempting for us to confuse the chaos of history with the conclusion of history. But chaos, change, endings, these things are, well, they're just part of the deal for those of us living on planet Earth. As Markin scholar Ben Witherington says, Jesus' prophecy is primarily not about the end of the world, but about the end of a world. So if you happen to be one of those Christians whose entire faith is wrapped up in the apocalypse, I'm sorry to say that this is not your day. But I think there's a message in our text for you too. Because the cold hard truth is the world is always ending for someone somewhere. A declaration of war, a catastrophic natural disaster, a new and novel virus that alters the most basic contours of ordinary life, a miscarriage, a horrific diagnosis, a spouse who walks out that door for the final time. The end is always near. And Jesus says that the anxiety and the loss that you feel at the end of your world is not a reliable indicator for the end of the world. But this raises a big question for us. What should we do when the world that we depend on slips away against our will? What do we do when life feels like an epilogue to all that we've known and loved? Well, part of the answer, at least according to Jesus, is to keep our eyes peeled. These are the beginnings of the birth pangs, Jesus says, so keep watch and stay alert. There are so many things on planet Earth that I will never know, and the process of giving birth is one of them. But the women in my life who have known the sacrament of childbirth tell me that it is painful, messy, violent, terrifying, and even traumatic. This is still true, even in the age of modern medicine, but being born was especially risky business in the ancient world in the first century. Yet in the Bible, the metaphor for birthing is used to describe a process of pain that is bringing forth new life. Jesus uses a particular Greek verb translated to watch numerous times throughout Mark 13. And the meaning of this word to watch is not to be a passive spectator, an observer. It means to be actively on the lookout. When your world falls apart, Jesus says you don't need to worry. These events are not beyond God, not beyond the one who is working to bring forth new life. It's impossible to know how long the labor will last, I'm sorry to say, but you can bet it will be a difficult delivery. So Jesus says to keep watch because the pain you're feeling is a sign that new life may already even now be breaking into your world. One way that Christians can follow Jesus' advice to keep watch is to wait for the literal second coming of Jesus when all will be made right at the end of time. Lots of people have done this. And by the way, before you dismiss this as silly or superstitious, let me remind you, 
There is a long history of Christians doing exactly this kind of watching, and they're not just end times junkies. That view has long sustained Christians who've been stuck living on the bottom rungs of society's ladder, yearning with froth and fever for a final end to all of the injustice and impression that keeps pushing them down, down, down. It was the American slaves, not masters, who sang, My Lord, what a morning when the stars begin to fall. And yet, for many of us, living in the 21st century, watching for Jesus to return at the end of all time is rather easy work. doesn't demand that we do anything differently, really, than, than those of us who aren't watching for that kind of event. So there is another way that Christians can follow Jesus' encouragement to keep watch. We can simply open our lives to the truth that just as the world is always ending, Christ is always returning. We can begin to believe that there is a living God who transforms endings into beginnings and out of death can call forth new life. We can withdraw some of the energy that we're investing into worrying and we can reinvest it into watching. The stones that we have so carefully constructed will fall until not one is left on top of another. Hurricanes will wash away. Markets will crash. Health will dwindle. Careers will end. Nations will crumble. Yes, even the supposedly God-blessed ones. The ground beneath our feet is ever quaking, and I'm sorry to tell you that's not going to change. The world is always ending, but Christ is always coming. And here's the secret. If you're focused too much on the first part, you'll miss the second part. If you're focused too much on the ending, you'll miss the coming. You know, three years almost to the day before my grandmother stood in front of that hotel window, 42 stories above Times Square, she was standing over her husband as he passed from this life into the next. She'd been married to my grandpa for more than 63 years when he died. Can you imagine? The moment he drew his last breath, their whole world ended. Their marriage ended. Their memories ended. All of their plans for the future ended. But that's only part of the story, at least from my perspective. Because even as their world was ending, Christ was coming again. In the prayers my grandfather prayed in his final days, Christ was coming again. In the smiles he offered and the ones he received, Christ was coming again. In the way my grandfather continued to share the good news of God's love for all people until he was bedbound, Christ was coming again. Even in the heartbroken love he received from his wife as she held her beloved's hand and walked him all the way home. Christ was coming again. <laughs> in moments of disintegration, it's easy to believe that God has nothing more to say to you, that God's taken a leave of absence. But today you can be reminded that in the words of the ancient prophet, our God is a God of both darkness and light. You see, for God, the whole universe is a cosmic delivery room over which the great midwife is always whispering, push, push, push. And if you turn away or take a nap, you'll miss the grand reveal. So if you're facing the end of your relationship or the end of your career or the end of your youth or the end of your dream, 
or the end of a life of someone you have loved with your whole heart, then I hope you'll mourn with all you've got. But I also hope that you will receive the good news of today's gospel, that God is waiting everywhere, even in the places you'd rather not go. That the Holy Spirit is hovering over the chaotic deep of your crumbling world, calling forth new life. That Jesus is always coming again and again and again, even in this terrible, wonderful time. So stay alert and keep watch. Because you might just find yourself, even with a broken heart, staring out a window with wonder in your eyes, witnessing not just the marvel of human innovation, but the living God coming in the clouds of your ordinary life. Amen.